0: everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring issues of measurement and methodology in clinical nursing research. My name is Ian Lane, and I'll be your host. All opinions shared on this podcast are my own, and none of the information I share constitutes medical advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Today I am talking with Dr. Joshua Lambert from the University of Cincinnati College of Nursing, who wrote a paper entitled Statistical Tools for Doctor of Nursing Practice Final Projects in the Journal of Nursing Education in January of 2020. Dr. Lambert is a PhD researcher trained as a biostatistician and epidemiologist and mathematical statistician from Kentucky I had a lovely time meeting with Dr. Lambert, and I hope that you will enjoy this episode of the podcast. All right, so uh, Josh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and just maybe speak to how you ended up in a nursing department and what you like about working with nurses?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I started out, um, at a pretty small public university in Kentucky, um, getting a degree in mathematics and statistics. And um, I actually hadn't taken my first statistics course until my senior year of college. And it was during that course I realized that um, I really enjoyed statistics and data. And because of that, the, those courses, it, it made me want to stay and get a master's degree in mathematics with like a focus in statistics. So I stayed at that same small public university, um, and got a master's degree, um, in mathematics and really at the, you know, after those first, after those two years of getting a master's degree, I I realized I was just in love with this, this subject and wanted to learn even more about it. Um, so I, I, I took a year off and I taught, um, uh, at a, a small school again, um, taught mathematics and statistics as a lecturer, and then about a year after being there, it was it was quite evident from my peers who were faculty who had PhDs that I needed to go back and, you know, get a PhD, so they encouraged me to go um, to the University of Kentucky and pursue my PhD in statistics, and so I did that in 2012 and um, started that pursuit, and it was there that um, I got a lot of exposure to consulting with Different individuals around the university on their statistical projects, and um, I, I made some switches. So I was originally in statistics. I got a master's degree in that from the University of Kentucky, and then I switched over to the PhD program in biostatistics and epidemiology, which is what my degrees in. And um, uh, with my the help of my mentor, my advisor, um, uh, you know, I, I realized that you know a career in teaching and consulting was really something that I wanted to do forever. And um, so after I was finished, I continued, I I got a full-time job there at the University of Kentucky as a research assistant professor where I was basically spending all day just um, working with individuals around campus on their different projects. And I had done some of that obviously as a graduate student, I actually worked full-time doing that as well um, as a staff member. And then um, the opportunity came at University of Cincinnati to join the College of Nursing as their primary statistician where I would consult with the DNP students um, who are in the DNP programs there as well as work with the tenure track and non-tenure track, the clinical track faculty on their various projects as well, as well as conduct my own research. And so um, before that, I really didn't have any experience working with nurses But since being there, you know, I'm in my third year now doing this, um, I can say I really love working with nursing researchers and nurses who are interested in improving the care of patients. Um, They provide a level of practicality that I quite enjoy over doing more rigorous mathematics, which is what I'm used to. And uh, because of that, you know, I've, I've got to be a part of a lot of really exciting studies since being here and got to really pursue my own research in a new and creative trajectory. It's been uh, enjoyable working with all the different faculty um, in their different research, as well as getting to do some of my own uh, research that I'm interested in with a lot of their data sets. Um, because at the end of the day, I am a you know, a biostatistician, and um, I have my own research methods that I'm interested in applying to data sets. So um, it's been enjoyable, and uh, I just like all of the different avenues that nursing has to offer in terms of the types of patients that fall under their umbrella of care.
0: That's fantastic. I appreciate that. To kind of recap for my listeners, I learned about you through a paper that you recently had published And um, I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about that paper, um, and then we can kind of jump into some of the questions I had for you after I read that.
1: Sure. Do you want me to just start with kind of a little overview of the paper?
0: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Okay. Yeah, so um, the name of the paper is Statistical Tools for Doctors of Nursing Practice Final Projects, or I guess you could call it capstone projects, um, depending on where you're at. So, uh, the paper is just a, a pretty short, brief little discussion of the over, like, kind of the history of um, the final projects for DNP students and um, how statistics kind of falls into that project or capstone. And since uh, arriving here at the University of Cincinnati, I noticed that DNP students as well as DNP faculty, um, clinical track faculty, as well as um, tenure track faculty really had different beliefs centered on whether or not statistical methods are really appropriate for DNP final projects or capstone projects. And so um, the rest of the paper, I kind of spend talking about the general um, design of DNP projects that I've encountered and what the appropriate statistical tools are if you wanted to do one of those designs and then i also discuss a little web application that i built um which allows you to upload your own data to that tool and to get statistical results out easily yeah that's generally the overview of the paper Um, you know i go into a few other little different things but um, that's, that's basically the gist of it.
0: That's perfect. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I read through this paper a couple times in preparation for this. And one of the things I noticed in the beginning, you do sort of allude in those first few paragraphs to this growing confusion that you had as a new, I, I don't know how new faculty you are now, but mm-hmm. new to the nursing department and sort of witnessing these discussions between, types of faculty and uh, about types of students in the doctoral program in regard to these statistical test applications. So what was that process like for you? And as a statistician, what led to the desire to write this editorial?
1: Yeah, so early on uh, there, as a a new faculty member, you were were right on about that description at the University of Cincinnati. Um, I had a a colleague who I would speak to frequently, who was the director of the DNP program. And uh, he kind of brought this topic up to me repeatedly. And we would speak about it, uh, speak about, you know, the appropriateness of statistical methods for DNP projects, whether they're needed or whether they're not needed. It was through that those conversations with him and then with other faculty members as well as students Um, I kind of realized that I think there's uh, kind of, I I realized that there's just a great deal of confusion around whether or not you really need a statistical method for your DNP project or not. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, being relatively new to this area, um, I, I wasn't always, I I really wasn't totally aware of what the typically was happening in the DNP for a capstone or a final project. And so through the, remaining, you know, through basically the first year, I feel like I had a pretty good idea of it. And that's what led me to, you know, uh, write this and to also um, kind of describe that frustration between whether you need to do it or you don't need to do it. But then also um, to give individuals a place to go where they can feel comfortable, you know, uploading their de-identified data, getting a basic statistical result and getting an interpretation along with it as well.
0: Right, without them having to, say, learn how to program in R or (laughs) something like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a nice segue too, because one of the things you did is you really concretized some next steps for folks, which I thought was really good. And um, one of the things you discuss, you discuss the idea that there are certain types of statistical tests that tend to be more applicable for DNP final projects that you've noticed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, you know, I'll let you speak to this, but centered around repeated measures designs and sort of like a pre post designs. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe why yeah. you, you think some of those views are, are taken?
1: Right. So I'll set, set it up like this. I mean, it, it should be said kind of from the get go here that uh, DNP students are typically in their degree, um, know, because of of a career move, right? They're trying to, um, they're trying to move on in their career, go upwards in their organization, or maybe they want to do a specific type of practice or so forth and so on. So there's, they're doing these for a lot of reasons. And and from what I've noticed, a, a lot of the students are students who are, they tend to be a little bit older than the general, you know, the normal student. Um, they tend to maybe have children or significant others that they're juggling along with their with their program, right? And so all of these constraints really make doing a DNP program really difficult um, as a university. And so you're trying to, as a university, create a process which is rigorous, but then, but with also kind of some um, guide rails or, or some guidelines, so to speak. Um, that will allow the student to kind of complete a project that's rigorous, but also in kind of a nice and easy fashion, so to speak, um, that they can do in a reasonable amount of time. And so the pre-post design is one that can be completed with relative ease, if I'm allowed to use that word. Some Mm -hmm. students probably won't agree with me on that. But um, it can can be completed in in a relatively short amount of time, Specifically in one setting where you were to possibly give um a cohort of nurses per se on a unit or on a floor somewhere a pretest about some information that you think they should know more about. Um and then you would complete the pretest, then educate them uh using an education that you've created, and then um give them a post-test right after and see how they've improved. And um So I I found that that's typically the most common type of design for these DMP projects that students are completing. Um, Again, they can be done in an afternoon, um, and you're able to see kind of immediate results about how your um, educational tool is improving the quality of their um, education, their knowledge, as well as maybe their confidence. And so... That's why, um, in my opinion, the pre-post design is probably the most preferred amongst this group of um, students, these DMP students, is because it's it's easy to implement, and um, also is, is kind of easily to it's easy to kind of see effects of what has happened um, related to again their education of choice. What now? Now to talk a little bit more about the the paired nature of this um it's important to know um, from a statistical perspective you're also doing yourself a huge favor by doing a paired design so typically and and, and this happens a lot um or in in a lot of different experimental situations we typically have two different groups two distinct groups of individuals one that may say receives a placebo and the other receives some sort of drug or intervention right And we want to look and see if there's differences There's massive problems with that type of a design because we have different people, right? And different people, um, people aren't like mice. Um, People don't behave like mice. They don't um, respond to treatment like mice. They don't do almost anything like mice or much for that matter. They don't uh, react like plants either, which lots of statistics was originally developed to measure differences in plants and agriculture. So, there's a huge problem in that type of design, and again, it's because you have heterogeneity of your samples. Those samples are different, um, a lot more different than just the thing that you're wanting to uh, perturb, which in the paired nature of the study also is, is, is really resolves that, because what you do is you use the subject as their own control, right? You begin the study by asking them a, a series of questions about their knowledge and confidence, and then you give them, you perturb them, you give them this education, and then you, um, ask them again, uh, their post confidence and knowledge questions, and, and they usually perform much better. And so the difference that you see, you can assume or infer is coming, um, only from the thing that you've perturbed them on, which is their, um, again, this education that you've given them. And it's not due to any other factors. So that's another reason why the paired design is really nice. It's easy to implement. And also the differences that you see, you know, are coming due directly to the education you've given and not to some other human-related element that we can't always control.
0: Right. I can tell you I did a recent um, integrative review that I am currently working on refining on a similar question of like how how dnps are currently trained if at all in certain types of research and um, and what types of research methods are well suited for their practice after Uh, it's a little bit of a tangential question to that really but one of the things i can confirm is that in the literature on that over the last 15 to 20 years there's been a great consensus that the pre-post design is a pretty good design it's a pretty good choice for a lot of the DNP final projects that are out there. So that's actually pretty consistent in the literature, which I think is a good thing. Although I think that you uniquely, as a statistician, really bring to light more specifics about this. And one of the other things I can say as well is that um, nurses have been talking in the literature for a while about DNPs conducting work that will derive internal evidence. And what they mean by that is, I I take to mean internally valid evidence and something like a pre-post design, you know, the ability to extrapolate and have external validity to other groups is obviously limited, but it's really good at generating internal validity for the sample you have, as you very elegantly alluded to there. So I really appreciate you saying that. Now I'm hoping, can you speak a little bit to the feasibility of some of the other I mean, there are myriad designs out there, right? I mean, everything from yeah. simple linear regression to logistic regression to all sorts of other more complicated, like multi-level things and, and beyond. But something like take simple linear regression, is this not feasible for DNP students? And if so, why not? Um, can you speak a little to that?
1: There's a, a distinction that needs to be made in the type of study that the student is, is partaking in. And then I'll, I'll, I'll get a little bit more into whether the DMP student is adequately prepared to do a linear regression or not. Yeah, please. So first, first thing I'd like to say is just that, um, and this is where a lot of the conversation has ended with a lot of the faculty and the students, um, which is, what is the purpose of your study, right? Um, If a lot of students and a lot of faculty members are interested in their students showing that they have improved the quality of a group within an organization. Okay. And other students, some other students are interested in other people, for instance, are interested in, um, showing that their results will generalize to the greater nursing population as a whole. Okay. Now this is a very important distinction from a statistical standpoint, because if you're in the first, the former, um, design or idea that you'd like to do which is to show improvement in your group you really don't need statistical testing hypothesis testing and let me break that down with an example so I have three children okay and uh, they're not of they're not all in uh, of, you know school age yet but let's say they were okay and let's say they were all the same age and I wanted to teach them all, mathematics, for instance. Right. Um, and I wanted to per- give them some education and see um, whether they improved on that or not. Now, for this, all i interested really is my own children. I'm not interested in all children. Right. I'm only interested in my own children. And so in this case, my population is my children, of which I have all of them and in- at my disposal. And I'm giving them all the education. Right. Mm. So it's very easy for me to give them the pretest give them the post-test and examine what were the differences and observe them. There's no reason to try to see whether they generalize to another population because I'm not interested in that. I just am interested in whether they improve, okay? And some nurses are only interested in that. They want to know, did my group of nurses improve or not? Which really can just be as simple as, did the average improve, right? Or did each nurse improve individually? It can be that simple. It doesn't need to be a statistical test. And so some of the students and the faculty that I talk to, they're only interested in that. Really, did I improve the quality of my group and my group only? Um, And then there's some other faculty and students who I meet with who are interested in, okay, I'm going to collect a sample of nurses from this population at my local hospital, for instance, right? And I'm interested in what does my education um, or will my education improve nurses in this bigger population, which I don't have disposal to, right? I don't have, I don't have them at my disposal. That then is a statistical question that we can use a sample from the population to help us answer. Okay. Um, so that's an important distinction that I just wanted to get out to your audience, which is you might be in just the, I'm improving my group, which case you're just looking at basic statistics like means and medians, right? Mm versus if you're wanting to really, um, show whether a result will generalize to the population that you're interested in, that's where you would need a statistical um, test. So I I wanted to point that out. Um, but to get back to your original should be expected to do a linear regression or not. I think that this really depends on the education of the DNP student. Now, Our DMP students at the University of Cincinnati do not learn linear regression. That's not part of their curriculum in their statistics courses. Right. Um, Our PhD students do, um, and they learn a lot of other advanced statistical methods besides that. But I really don't think it's appropriate for a DMP student to do a linear regression unless they are adequately trained to do so. Agreed. Um, (laughs) So... That's what I'll say about that. I know that some people may disagree with me on that, but I just think after talking with, with students, you know, again, for the last three years, they get to this point in, in their degree, the third year potentially, they need to graduate, right? They're, they're on track to graduate. We've, we've, we've promised them X amount of years to graduation. And um, uh, then we want them to do a statistical test of which they have no knowledge about or no training about. I just feel like that's a bit unfair. So, um, And also in my experience as a statistician and somebody who's been on a lot of different papers and been a part of a lot of different projects, a lot of times saying something simple that you understand is more powerful than saying something complex that you don't understand.
0: Mm, absolutely. I think that's a really, really well put point. So I appreciate you saying that. One distinction that's also worth mentioning is that there- there should be a difference in the discussion of what happens in a DNP program, for example, and then after graduation, what happens across the length of that person's career. And so in the program, you know, you only have a, a limited amount of time to work with uh, a data set for, as one example, and maybe that's only six months because there's so much else that you have to pack into these programs, and it's intended to be a practice doctorate, a clinical doctorate, Um, But then, you know, supposing that I, one of the papers that I read recently said that approximately 29% of DNP graduating students are interested in clinical research. That's obviously the minority, but it still amounts to several thousand people. And if they go out and they don't get that additional training that you mentioned, and then they try to do these more intricate statistical test. It's, I think, an argument for postdoctoral training, further postdoctoral training, even if it's a fellowship. Um, that's sort of my bias up front is there's the discussion of what happens during the training in the couple of years that a DNP student has in the program, and then what happens post-graduation. I say this because it's a particular interest of mine. So your analogy is an interesting one because for you, you're, you have two kids Three kids. Three kids. Um, so you have these three kids, and they're going to be your three kids forever, <laughs> and right. But that population state—that is the population, right? But
1: it is the population for me.
0: Right. So suppose you're a DNP graduate who's not looking at your nursing staff. Let's say you're looking at like I don't know. You're a a hepatology nurse, and you're looking at liver patients. You're going to have a a dissipative structure that is a different incoming sample of people into your institution across time. And if that person wants to make generalizable conclusions from their data to the larger population of liver patients and whatever condition they're looking at, you know, it get, it gets kind of hairy because they may not have a population. So obviously, you know, we're getting a little bit in the weeds and I, I'm not trying to push back at all. I think your, your point no, is no, very no. well taken. But what do you think no, about... You, you- about that so yeah. far,
1: no. Yeah, I, I think you're right on. I think traditionally, though, the the nursing, you know, that whether it be the BSN, the MSN, or the DNP, you know, student um, or graduate, isn't been historically expected to do those or answer those types of questions. Oh, very true. What I believe personally, since being here in the College of Nursing and also working previously with colleges of medicine and lots of different you know, uh, types of individuals and, and also working in a healthcare at a, at a university that had a, a big healthcare system, who which employed nurses um, to do, to answer a lot of questions that you just described. Mm. Um, I think that the future of nursing is going to be increasingly more centered on being able to do more and more data science activities. Um, I think that data science and nursing are going to fuse together in a way unlike probably a lot of other careers are. And if you look at uh, other programs like business, for instance, over the last 20 years, um, business used to be, you know, pretty pretty standard um, type of curriculum in terms of, you know, you're going to learn about your accounting, and you're gonna learn about your management. I mean, it it was basically unchanged for 30, 40 years. Mm. Um, And then within the last, say, 15 to 20 years, that curriculum has changed a great deal to now include a lot more data science, teaching individuals who are getting business degrees on how to actually perform rudimentary data analysis on their big data sets. And the truth is, is that the nurse understands the data better than pretty much any other person at the healthcare institution. Mm. Um, They interface with the data on a personal level, they input the data, they work with the data, right? And there's a massive disconnect right now between the data that we pull from the electronic medical record and the intuition and the insight we can get from it on the back end after we complete the analysis. And I think the missing link is the nurse. And that's why, personally, I think right now, I don't think we can expect them because they're not being trained. They're being trained in, dare I say it, archaic things that (laughs) may be um, not being used in the next 10 or 15 years. And then they'll be expected to go back and get yet another degree. Right, Um, Right. And instead, we should be training them in how to do these various data science activities and skills.
0: I could not agree more. I mean, it's definitely a passion of mine. And um, and so I'm clearly biased, <laughs> but I find sure. that your your point is well taken. You know, my husband is a nurse, and um, he's growing a little more interested in nursing informatics for this reason. You know, he's at the BSN level, but he's um, realizing that the nurses do all the charting. They're the ones that yes. take all the notes. They're the ones that are spending most of their time inputting the data, like you mentioned, and then the person on the back end answering these questions about. I don't know, health services might be a health service researcher or a data scientist, and they're very important people. But like you said, there's a missing link there, and it's the content expertise too. Let me shift gears a little and go back to the work that you did. So it seems like you have worked with, have you worked with several cohorts now of DNPs? Uh, Kind of re-familiarize me with, with how long you've been at the nursing department.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah so uh i guess at this point i will have been i have worked with about four cohorts of DNP students oh. um so I've, I've been there about three years but the way things work out and when students choose to start in their capstone slash DNP project um is different for every student Great. so it's about four four cohorts worth of students
0: and so um after doing this a while, you realized that there, it seems like you realized anyway, that there are certain places which would be especially impactful to kind of help these DNP students. And one of the things you did from my read is that you not only developed this program online, but you uh, modeled certain things for them, like McNamara's test and stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you mean in terms of uh, the, the different... Um things that come out of those applications? Or what do you could, you, could you be a little bit more specific?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I took away is that there are specific tests that you program in there for them, one of mm-hmm. which is McNamars for nominal data. And yes. it strikes me that there must have been a reason why you chose that over other things. I mean, you seem like a very thoughtful person in terms of like what do these students actually need from me that's that's what I get from my talk with you so far and uh, yeah and so why did you choose like what are the tests you put in there and why did you choose them maybe it's a better question
1: no that's okay that that helps a lot thank you um yeah so the reason uh, that the paired t test uh, and the McNamara's test are are both included and, and I guess I should also say that the regular t-test and the chi-square test are also available on those um, tools. So really there are two, two two tools, one where your outcome is continuous or an interval or ratio level variable. So think of something like blood pressure or stress or um, a score on a test, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other one, the continuous outcomes that's where you would want to use a t-test, and if you have two distinct groups that you're wanting to compare, you would do a regular t-test for that. And if you have again a, a paired design, like we've previously talked about, where you are measuring individuals um, pre and then post, that would be a paired design because again, you've um, um, again are using your uh, the same subjects as their own control, so that's a paired design. And I'll, I'll just slip this in here. If you're doing that type of design, one thing you want to make sure you do, I've run into this a few times with students, is that um, they fail to attach an, a, an, an identifier to their pre and post samples. Mm. So you want to make sure you're able to match up the pretest with the post test, that it's coming from the same person. So make sure you're uh, adding that in or you're, you're taking that responsibility on yourself to use a unique identifier for each person. So that's when t-test and a paired t-test are appropriate. And we have, I have one application that's meant just for that, where you can upload your data. And I give you an example, and and there's a YouTube video on that website of how to use the tool. So you would upload your data and go through and select the columns in which you want to compare. And then you click uh, another tab over, and it gives you the statistical result as well as an interpretation of what that is in terms of statistical language. So I think it just helps students get over the top of feeling, you know, overwhelmed about what they do um, and just helping them kind of get to the end point and give them the language that they need. Um, the other uh, tool is a tool meant for, again, for outcomes which are categorical or nominal. In those cases, um, again, you typically will have two groups or you'll have pre post design. So if you have two groups and you're wanting to compare a categorical response, you would want to do a chi-square test of which that tool can do and then um if you have a pre-post design that is a categorical response like they either got it right or they got it wrong they passed they failed something like that pre to post then you would want to use what's called a magnum test and that tool does both of those so there's two tools one for continuous outcomes scale interval um you know information or variables, and then another tool, which is meant for categorical outcomes, that uh, you would use either a chi-squared or a magnanimator's test on.
0: Do you mind if I ask you one more question about your program? Sure. I'm sure there are many different ways to answer this, but what would be one benefit to your students of using that program over something like SPSS, for example, which can do some of these things, but are, is simpler than like learning how to program, for example?
1: Uh, well, the main benefit is that my tool is free. Um, <laughs> that's a good point. And that, that's really the the biggest. <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm. You're never going to hear me recommend my tool over SPSS or any other statistical tool. I mean, they're they're superior. What I've found though is not all students have that training to use SPSS, and so. Right. Not only is there a, a a price barrier for them, there's also a training barrier for them. And as an educator. I am an advocate of free and open software, so that our students can learn and, um, you know, get prepared for the working world. Um, and so, uh, I felt like at the least, the least thing I could do with with some of my background and experience in building web applications, um, I could I could build them this tool that would again help them step through what they're doing and, and hopefully provide them a clear and concise interpretation of what they did.
0: Absolutely. the free and open piece makes me think you're more of a an R guy than a SAS guy yourself.
1: <laughs> well I should say that the the tool is is built on R so the back end of um, the tool is all R everything oh, about it is is using R so there's no you know handwritten formulas in there by me um, everything on the back end is all what you would get if you got into R and you Ran this yourself there. So right. uh, the interface of that web app is just, you know, some some simple JavaScript language, which some people at a, at a, a company called Studio created mm-hmm. that uh, I've just used to create this nice web application.
0: That's fantastic. Um, so I, you actually brought up maybe what would have been a better question for me to ask. Uh, and that one was sort of just an off the cuff question. But th- I think what I really was trying to get at, and thank you for instilling this in me, is there's the free access option, which is important, um, but then there's the ease of use part that you spoke to. So, what makes it easier for them than something like SPSS, which they'd have to they'd have to learn? Obviously, there's a there's a learning curve with SPSS, but that implies there's less of a learning curve with yours, which I believe it, it's probably true. But why is that? What makes it easier?
1: So, the thing that I wanted to do with these tools and and. The, I could have just created one tool that did both, mm-hmm. but one of the things I've realized in teaching nursing students now for you know three years, I'm um, going on four, is that when it comes to software, um, not all of them are the most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Some are very comfortable, um, and that isn't to diminish them or, or to say that they're not intelligent or smart or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. I think that they're they're brilliant. Um, we're just all brilliant in different ways and so the students I find uh, some can sometimes be um, just a little bit overwhelmed when they get a new piece of software and uh, you know it's got a big fancy name like SPSS right right it's got got a big fancy name like jump or it's got a big fancy name like s you know SAS or r or something (laughs) and they've heard all of this and all that's difficult and The web application, to me, it was something that actually students were doing anyway. They were finding these random web applications online and sending them to me. It's like, do you trust this? Can I use this? And I was like, well, I mean, it seems to give the correct result when I try it out, but I I can't speak to its credibility. And so for those reasons, I felt like creating my own um, that I knew would work and work correctly if the students used it correctly. Um, would give the right results. So so part of it was the students were already comfortable with this platform of, of using a web application that I thought I can mimic this and do it. So it's already comfortable for most students, um, the interface that is. The other thing that I think makes it s- simpler, or easier to understand um, is that it's it's really just meant to do uh, uh, really two different different statistical procedures. That's it. It's not really meant to do anything else. And there's simple dropdowns. Everything's right there. There's not multiple pages that you have to click around to, right? Different buttons and option windows that pop up. Everything's basically just right there. Uh, when you log on to the website, you'll see it all. Um, I, you know, again, recorded a pretty simple uh, video about 10 minutes long of going through an example of how to use it. So I think the simple and straightforward nature of it as well as kind of an overview on the website of what, when you would want to use this tool, Hmm. um, you know, it again provides this kind of all encompassing kind of one-stop shop for the whole thing. And there's no jumping around, you know, going to chapter 10 and then going back to chapter 22 and let me go to the help page and (laughs) why won't this load? And why won't, you know, it's just all right there. And so, um, again, that, that kind of one-stop shop was what I was, thinking and feeling like students really wanted and that's just what it ended up providing and so um, that's that's really why I think students uh, why it's simpler for students is it really is just something they're comfortable with it has nothing to do with it being easier or you know anything like that it's just it's comfortable and I find that with students more and more is that if you can create something that's comfortable that you can ease into and get excited about, even just even the slightest bit, um, you know, you'll have students going and using your tool over pretty much anything else. And right. that's why I try to create.
0: Yeah. I mean, by easier, I feel like it's a reduced barrier to entry, right? I mean, one, sure. one of the things that you're saying that, that stands out to me across the length of our conversation so far is essentially You know, take a PhD student in nursing. I mean, the PhD student has, if they come in at the bachelor's level, which I know most don't, but that's moving in that direction. If they come in at the bachelor's level, it's like a typical PhD. It could be five to six years, um, maybe a year longer at the max. You know, and so they have the time to really dig into some of the nitty gritty in this area. Um, But to your point, the DNP student in the small amount of time they have to do a final project and to, to not only to, to conduct it, whatever it is, but also to learn how to analyze it, you know, even with the help of somebody consulting with them, which they're bound to have, there's still this barrier to really, you know, barrier to entry. And for something like SPSS, which is simple, but it's also, there's a, a learning phase, which takes time. And one of the things I'm hearing, and correct me if this is wrong, is that that's part of the hindrance of, or the cumbersome nature of trying to do more types of statistical competency training in this this cohort, this group.
1: Yeah, and you know at University of Cincinnati, and I know at a lot of other places, um, the students don't spend any time learning SPSS um, or any other statistical software. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their DNP program. They may learn some other software that's included as part of their book that they're using, but they're they're not getting any real hands-on experience with doing statistical analysis and real statistical software Mm that you could go out and buy and really do anything sophisticated with. And so when they get to their actual project where they've collected all this data and they actually need to do real statistics, they just have no clue what to do and they're overwhelmed. And so, um, yeah, I, I think you're right on that. That is a major barrier. It's just overwhelming. And so I, I tend to be a lot of the students, good friends by the time that they're done, Um, (laughs) you know, helping them. Yeah. Helping them get through their, uh, what they feel like is a major hurdle in 30 or 45 minutes typically is, um, something that they usually walk away just blown away with. And, and that's what I wanted to do with the application. And, and some of the reception I've gotten back from people, you know, around the country about it has been, hey, this is really great. This is exactly what we need. Um, you know, we just need something simple that they can plug their data into and get a result out so that we know we're being, you know, checking off the scientific box, so to speak. But back to our original conversation, you know, I I do think the DNP students should be spending more time learning statistics um, and specifically learning how to really do real world statistics and data analysis. Yep. I just think that it's going to be a part of the future.
0: I agree. I mean, we're let me caveat this with, I am definitely not a statistician, but as someone who's passionate about methods and statistics and speaking with a statistician, we're clearly biased. I personally believe that the the motivating impetus for the development of the DNP was to translate evidence based practices into whatever clinical world the, the DNP inhabits. But in order to do that, you have to work with data but in order to work with data you have to know what to do with the data and now you can always bring a consultant on assuming there's sure. a consultant who has you know uh, a sufficient amount of content knowledge to help you or if you have the time to bring them up to speed i mean there uh, there are a lot of i think reasons to instill these in the dnps themselves and i think that one of the biggest impacts of the dnp in the future going forward is going to be to, to really have a bigger impact in terms of implementation and evidence-based translation, which, I mean, there's this implication and I'm getting off track, but I apologize. There's this implication in the world of nursing research that is, it kind of goes like the nurse PhDs doing research will generate evidence and then the DNPs will apply that evidence. But application often requires another level of research and that is something that DNPs are very well-suited to do. They're very intelligent. Yes, they are. Yeah. And, but, you know, something like um, the example I would give is when I first learned what a T-test was, it seemed completely overwhelming trying to learn the formula, which, in retrospect, is uber simple. But when I was first learning it, it's like a foreign language. And it, there is this barrier to really to doing any even nominal statistics. Um, I guess that's the the wrong word to use when I'm talking to a statistician, basic statistics. I'm realizing that it's partly this barrier and this sort of uh, reluctance to pursue additional competencies in this area for the DNPs that sort of holds us back in this way. But I think it's important to to move that forward. So first, what yeah. would you... What would you say to that? And then I guess the next question I have for you is, what are the ways that you think we can enhance some of those competencies going forward?
1: Yeah, and I would respond to that by saying, you know, I totally agree with you in that the, the DNP student is trained to interface again with this idea of bringing evidence into practice. And um, I really feel that a time has come when they need to, they need to start interfacing back with how practice turns into evidence. Mm. And, you know, I, I would look no further than Florence Nightingale, which is often, she's often credited as the founder of, of mm. modern nursing. But the other thing that people forget as I've, as a graduate, as a, of a college of public health is that she is oftentimes considered the founder of modern epidemiology and, the founder of modern biostatistics. So she's credited with really the founding of three um, pillars of our science centered around health. And uh, she really was able to do something. um, And anybody that's not familiar with her story, I'd encourage you to look it up and and read more about it or or watch the number of documentaries that that are out there about her she was really able to do this because of her own understanding about all three of those subjects simultaneously, right? She understood some about epidemiology or about this idea, right, of, of prevalence of disease and, and groups that are being affected and other groups that are being affected maybe differently. And then she also understood uh, caring with patients and getting to know their story, right, and, and what those were about. But then she also understood things about data and plotting that data so that she could understand things from that empirical evidence. And that, to me, is the future of the DNP. Um, It is doing that every day. Um, It's working with data. It's plotting that data, understanding, getting insights. Maybe there's a team centered around them. Maybe there isn't. Um, It's obviously understanding the bedside component of nursing. And there's also understanding uh, various uh, ideas that are um, important in epidemiology. And I think with that, you're going to see again um, a lot of the various inequities that exist right now in our world begin to get cleared up because I think that nurses have this capability of, of communicating what's happening on the patient level with the science that we just don't have right now. Um, and so that that's kind of my vision of the future of the DMP that DMP that I like to pr- promote um, to to individuals who are like minded like yourself. So I, whether that that makes it again in the final cut or not, I don't. It doesn't bother me. But um, I think that the way that we move forward with educating the the DMP student needs to be um, obviously as a statistician <laughs> needs to be um, you know doing more data-driven activities doing more um, using more statistical software with real data and actually getting the dnp students um, you know feet dirty a little bit and their hands dirty and how to actually use this data to drive some decision making and that to me right now is just is missing um, some of the internal conversations we've had here has been on, for certain degree programs has been on offering a um, a data management practicum oh. where um, you can actually spend a number of hours working with data as a student and so that's something i'm very excited about as a statistician um, so yeah I, I think it's those types of ideas of just giving the students more ability uh, or not more ability but more exposure to working with real data under a um, supervised and you know circumstance um, is, is really going to excel them and allow them to, you know, again, go out in the real world and and use these data sets.
0: Certainly. And I will say for the listeners out there who don't already know this, there's a big initiative at the national Institute for nursing research in omics and in relation to omics, big data. And, you know, there clearly are some kinks to work out in terms of like the signal to noise ratio and all these things that are at uh, uh, an issue in some of the more novel methods for, big data, but nonetheless, nursing is trying to push for that on a more uh, broad scale. And so as that trickles down, I think that will become more commonplace at schools of nursing. So I, th- I thank you for bringing that up, too. I know we're coming up on time, but I want to get a chance to ask you what some of your research interests are specifically. Tell us a little bit about what grips you and what you're passionate about.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up. So, uh, as a statistician, a, a biostatistician, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in how um, how we can create new statistical tools to answer uh, data problems in uh, related to different health outcomes. And the beginning part of my career here has been focused on um, the creation and invention of this statistical algorithm to be able to find complex associations and large data sets um, for really any outcome. Um, So for instance, um, just to kind of bring up an example uh, of where we're applying this algorithm that I created um, back in graduate school. Um, uh, Here in Cincinnati area, we have a A problem that's going on around prenatal opioid exposure, as they are in a lot of different areas around the United States. Hmm. And one of the things that we're interested in is, um, or we think to be happening, and we have some evidence of this in the literature, is that different children are being um, harmed differently uh, with prenatal opioid exposure than other kids. Um, For what kinds of outcomes they're having. So, for instance, some kids are having outcomes related to different bone diseases and other kids are having outcomes related to other defects that they may be having, right? And so uh, we're interested in using this algorithm that I've created to tease out what are the subgroups of kids that are having these outcomes, right? And are they uh, poor African-American kids who've been prenatally opioid exposed? Are they um you know more affluent white children (laughs) um you know who are they um who what are these subgroups of people and how are they being affected for these different outcomes and so um, traditional statistical methods don't check for this type of subgroup related effects all the time and so um that's what the algorithm seeks to do it it seeks to look through kind of big data and find different subgroup specific effects um, that are happening within it for different outcomes of interest. And so that's been kind of my, um, my soapbox uh, that I've been harping on for the last five, six years now um, about trying to push my algorithm out there and, and trying to get people to use it to when they're doing their statistical analysis to look for these different subgroup specific effects.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, hence the interest in secondary data analysis you mentioned earlier, Um, Exactly. That's that's great. Um, So is there anything else that we didn't talk about relating either to your experiences in the department, your uh, paper itself that you think would be important to touch on?
1: No, I don't. I don't think so. This was a a really great interview. You did a wonderful job. I, I don't think I have anything really to add at this time. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Wonderful. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah. And do you have your own question you had, you said?
0: I do. I was going to ask you off air, but do you want me to ask it now?
1: That's fine. Whatever you prefer.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe my um, listeners who are, like I have a lot of uh, public health listeners as well. There seems to be a breakdown um, of uh, nurses, nursing students, NPs, research scientists in nursing, and then a bunch of public health focused folks, which I think is great. So anyway, if I gave you a couple parameters, I'm wondering if you can tell me what statistical test you would use for a data set like this. Suppose you're looking at within subject time series data and your data show it needs to be non-parametric because it's not following this uh, normal distribution kind of situation. And there are multiple independent variables. So say you're looking at like blood biomarkers in one patient over time what would your go-to first statistical test be?
1: Let me follow that up with, um, what are you wanting to look for in terms of these patterns over time within patients? Are you wanting to see when they reach detectable limit, some detectable limit? Are you wanting to see, you know, they cross some threshold or they have different patterns for different groups?
0: I guess that makes it even more complicated because then it it really depends on... um, the other aspect of this is that there's presumably some intervention that's occurring that's, that you're hoping to see concomitantly with change. this change. Yeah. Um, yeah. So say you're giving a medication and you're, you're watching for that. We're trying to lower some biomarker to an appropriate threshold with some intervention. Right. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. I'm just making this It up. does.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a it's not really new, but it's, it's gotten popular here within the last I don't know five, 10 years. There's a type of statistical analysis called functional data analysis. So you might want to look into that if, if that's something you're interested in. Um, but it, it basically models um, data, which is a function of time. And you're able to kind of pick up on differences um, across groups or really everything you were just talking about. Um, I think functional data analysis would be a place to look. Um, if you're able to convert that to some sort of time-to-event data, then you can do survival analysis, so something like kaplan Meyer, Cox Proportional Hazard hmm. Modeling. But um, functional data analysis, is, it, it's difficult. You know, It's not going to be something you can um, learn in an afternoon, but um, it, it is something that, that has a lot of promise out there to, to being able to analyze a lot of the health data that we get in, in kind of series over time. And seeing that being used a lot more and, and obviously, obviously I, I, I would be dismissed if I didn't throw in the uh, tagline, the tag word, you know, machine learning. There's lots of other machine learning methods out there right now that um, could probably deal with that pretty well as well. So, but that's, a, that's a, a pretty broad field and I'm not being very specific there about which method, but yeah, there's, uh, I would probably check into functional data analysis um, depending on what you were doing.
0: Well, that's helpful. I will do that. And to be fair, it was a very broad, ambiguous question too. I um, I just, earlier I was like, I'm going to get a weird conglomeration of, of things and stick them together and be like, here, pick a test. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the, the truth is, is that there's, there's always, you know, um, five or 10 different ways you can do, you can analyze data yeah. and some of them are more correct than others, but I'll, I'll go back on what I said earlier, you know, so doing something simple that you can understand is oftentimes more powerful than doing something that's more complicated that you don't understand.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your colleagues in healthcare. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if I ever review a paper you are an author on and would like to join me to discuss the paper or some other work you are doing, please send a note to that same email address. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.